The scripture for today's sermon comes from Psalm 46. The word of God speaks to us. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, family. We doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. Um, I don't uh, know how all of us are coming in. If you're a guest, if you're a regular, if you are... Uh, a guest of a family member, if this is your first time, first time back in a long time, however you're here today, um, it's a privilege to greet you. It's a privilege to share a morning of worship with you and open God's word. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors. And uh, if you've got a Bible, open to the 46th Psalm that was just read to us. I'm really, really excited to open God's word today. If you've been with us, you know that we just finished up the book of 1 Corinthians last week. And Josh said, uh, Pastor Josh last week as he finished it up, mentioned that we're going to be starting the book of Genesis. Um, that's our next sort of uh, direction of study. And so that's going to start September 10th, the Sunday after Labor Day. Uh, but between now and then, we're going to be taking up different passages of Scripture that we wouldn't normally be in, just uh, to be encouraged by God's Word, to see different angles and, and aspects of God's Word that come to us for our encouragement. So today, the 46th Psalm. And uh, this passage, I'll just say, as we jump into prayer in a moment, this passage um, has meant a lot to me over the years of just following Jesus. My hope today, um, just to show my cards, my hope today, like the burning desire in my chest all week long as I've thought about you, as I've labored over this passage, as I've prepared this sermon, is that we would all leave today intensely encouraged at who God is for us. Like that's my hope for you today, uh, that you'd be edified in God. And so as we pray today, here's what I want to do. I want us to pray for the time we would have in God's word, that God would help us. But I also just want to take a moment as we pray and just think about our city. So much of who God is for us in this passage gives us confidence to think about what kind of renewing presence he might give to our city. What might it look like for God to take Oklahoma City, his kingdom come, his will be done. So I want us to pray for renewal as we jump into our past today. Does that sound good? Let's do it together. Our Father, we come to you today. We come to you in behind and in the name of our Lord Jesus. <laughs> God, thank you for your son. God, thank you for your son by whom we know that the power is not in our prayers. The power is in the work that he's done for us that allows our prayers to be heard. 
And so we say in the model prayer Jesus gave us, Father, holy is your name. Holy is your name, God. Would your name be made holy in our city? And we pray, God, today that your kingdom would come. We pray today that your kingdom, your rule and your reign and your presence would come to our city. And your will would be done in our city just like it's happening in heaven. Hey, take a second as we're praying today and just offer God your home, offer God your neighborhood, your workplace, and our city. Just take a second and just offer God the places of your life. And ask him that those places would be marked with the grace of Jesus to change lives. Jesus, we believe that every, every drip of blood that you shed on the cross was to purchase your people. And I know, I'm convinced because you haven't returned yet, that there are more people in our city that belong to you. Would you claim them, Lord Jesus? We ask that you would help us to open our mouths, that our lives would bear witness, but we ask that the change you've brought to us, would you bring change to our workplaces? Would you bring change to our neighborhoods? Would you bring change to our city, God? Have your people, have your glory, Lord Jesus. It's due you. It's due you. And so, Father, we ask now as we open your word that you would attend us these next 30 minutes to edify us around your voice in these scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen, amen. amen. Well, I grew up as an only child, and I realized to start a sermon like that puts me at a deficit, you know? It explains so much of the bustedness in my life. But it's funny now, as a father of four, so much of the things I missed in, like, sibling dynamics... I now get to see in my kids as they run around the house, all the, all the pestering, the sneaky stealing from one another, all the ways of just like pushing buttons just because you know you can, you know, just, just sort of get a rise out of somebody because I'm bored. The closest thing I got to experiencing some of that growing up was when I would go to a friend's house. As an only child, it was like, I can only push my buttons, you know, so let me go to a friend's house and see how they do it. And uh, my best friend growing up had a little brother, and it was just sort of known, like, I, I spent so much of my time at my best friend's house growing up, and it was just sort of known, like, when I was over there, at some point, we didn't have to say this, it wasn't like an agreement we made, we just knew at some point we were going to pick on him, and we were going to pick a fight, and that was just how we were going to pass time, you know. And I have one moment sort of burned in my memory when we had done this whole thing, and I was sort of wrestling with his younger brother, and the wrestling had gone on far too long, and tempers were getting hot, and it was about the time that really something needed to happen, and Mr. Miles walked into the room. And he didn't have to do much. He saw what was happening, and it, like, he, it just was an instinct. It, like, the, the, the assessment of the situation was pretty quick. Mr. Miles walked into the room, and he had one word to say, enough. Enough. It was one word and a world of meaning. All of us stood up immediately, right? Big brother, me, little brother, we stood up immediately. And we all knew that that one word addressed us differently. He only had to say one word. He didn't have to say anything else. He gave a look and a word, and that was it. And his, his word and his look spoke a thousand things. 
It was, like, it was like this legendary dad moment. I have this, again, I have this moment burned in my memory, this legendary dad moment where somehow he was able to look all of us in the eye at the same time. <laughs> you know? He looked at the older brother as if to say, you're just going to let this happen to your little brother? You're not going to defend him at all? He looked at me as if to say, this is my house, that's my son, and you've gone too far. Enough. And he looked at the little brother as if to say, I've got your back. I've got your back even if no one else does. And I need you to know that, but I also need those two older boys to know that. Enough. Enough, he said. And so what I want you to do this morning is take that illustration of the voice of the father coming forward to level a moment. Take that illustration, and if you possibly can, with redeemed imagination with me this morning, magnify that exponentially. Like, roll that up onto our Heavenly Father. Magnify that exponentially, and you'll start to get a sense of the heart of this passage before us this morning of who God is for his people and how he acts on our behalf. Psalm 46 was an Israelite song. It's now a song for followers of Jesus. We're told in the superscript, that is the words above the first verse, we're told that there's instructions to a choir master. These might be words you just typically pass over in your reading of the passage, but this is instructions to a choir master, meaning this is a song that was meant to be sung, it was meant to be rehearsed over and over again by the people of Israel. It's a song of consolation, it's a song of comfort, it's a song of courage. The driving burden of the lyrics in front of us today is this. I love it. The confidence and comfort of the people of God is God himself. The confidence and comfort of the people of God is God himself. He will fight for you. Drop your shoulders. God will fight for you. Cast your fears on him, just like it was for the little brother that morning when the father said enough, your father's shadow is a safe place to stand. Hey, if you're new to the Bible, as we jump into this passage, the book of Psalms is a prayer book. It's a song book for God's people across all time. The reason that we have the book of Psalms in the Bible is this, this book that helps us to know that God understands the emotional life of his people. He understands your internal conflict. He understands your doubts, your fears. He understands all the things that are waging war inside of you. And the book of Psalms lets us know that he's not opposed of you because of all those things. But also these prayers and these songs are given to us so we might have our emotional life not just understood by God. We have these songs and prayers so that we can have our emotional life reshaped by God. Because isn't it true so much of what we feel tries to convince us that God isn't there? And so we need our emotional life reshaped by what's true. And this is certainly true of Psalm 46. What's going to happen in these 11 verses, they're composed in three different sections. Each one sort of leads smoothly into the next. And we're going to take each one of them in turn. The first section is all about God, our protector. In verses 1 to 3, the songwriter gives us a high view of God, a protector. Notice verse 1. He says this, God is our refuge and strength. Pause there. God is our refuge and our strength. This song begins with a really massive declaration. It's an opening lyric that's intended to grab your attention. It's intended to sort of draw you forward. 
He's saying the place of security and courage for God's people is no other than God alone. It's God alone. The writer's intentional with this. He's saying that your security and your courage is not God plus. It's not God plus. It's God. Your security and your courage, your refuge and your strength is not money. Although sometimes we think it is. Your refuge and your strength is not the good opinions of other people. Although sometimes we try to find it there. Your refuge and your strength is not the victory or success of your preferred political brand, although sometimes we like to tout it to be. Your refuge and your strength is not your achievements or your ability to control situations or other people or outcomes. That's not your refuge and your strength. By definition, listen to this, by definition, if your place of refuge and strength is connected, from, is connected to anything that can be taken away from you or betray you or collapse, then it can't be a refuge or a strength. It's only a mirage. It's only something you're building up to cover over for an insecurity. God is the only one who can provide true refuge and true strength. The reason is because he's the only one who cannot be shaken. He can only, he's the only one who cannot be shaken. Listen, there's never been a moment where God has been made to flinch. There's never been a moment where God has been made to second guess. He's never been rivaled, and he never will be rivaled. He's never been threatened. He's never been anxious. He's never been unsure. He's never woke up on the wrong side of the bed. There's only one place of real assurance. There's only one place of real refuge and real strength. And the songwriter intends to grab our attention and to fortify us from the beginning of this song. Notice the good news of the next line. Your God is a refuge and a strength and he's a very present help in trouble. God isn't simply an observer in the trouble of his people. I don't know how you feel about your life today or troubles that you know of, that you've had, or that you're experiencing, or that you will have, but God is not an observer of the trouble of his people. He's not a detached watcher from across the street or another room, just sort of kind of arms folded looking at your trouble. The passage says that your God is a very present help. He's an eagerly present help, a totally competent helper. There's not a trouble that's too hard for your God. There's not a sorrow that's too great for him to console. There's not a wound too deep for him to heal. And I know from the beginning of just walking through these lyrics, there's some of you here today who hear what I'm saying and you may doubt this. Well, how do I know? Maybe your question is, how do I know this isn't just sort of hopeful religious speech? How do I know it's not just warm things to say, warm religious ramblings to make us feel better or to make weak, narrow-minded religious people feel better who need a crutch to get through life with? How do I know? Maybe you have these doubts because you're actually here today. You came into church wondering, is God even real? Is he even there? I know what the Psalms say, maybe you've read them before, but is he even there? Maybe you would say, hey listen, a very present help in time of trouble. Yeah, but you don't know my situation. You don't know my trouble. Maybe I don't. You'd say, you say he's a place of comfort and courage, already help, but my life and my soul feels like chaos and I can't seem to find God anywhere. Here's what I'd want you to hear today. 
The message of this song isn't blind. The writers of this song were not blind to the real stuff of life. They weren't blind. It's not blind to the real stuff of this world. This song is saying big things about God, but it's saying big things about God, eyes wide open and with wind in the face. That's how it's saying these things. I think about what's happening here in terms of my four kids and the process over the years of teaching them all to learn to ride a bike. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first time they get out there without training wheels, they just sort of all of a sudden have this assumption, you don't love me, you're going to abandon me, and you've brought me out to the middle of the street to kill me. (laughs) You could have stopped all of this, and you didn't. And so what happens in those moments, isn't it interesting, what happens in those moments is you feel the unsteadiness, you feel the wobbliness, you have no idea what you're doing, and you start, your emotions start feeding you a narrative about the presence of your father that isn't true. It's not true. And so what, what do I do in those moments? Do I just sort of, you know what, you're scared. I should probably just take you off the bike and never put you up against that again. No, 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 no. What what I need to do in those moments, what any good dad does in those moments, good mom does in those moments, is that your kids need their emotions to be reshaped by what's actually true about how very present you are to help them. They think you're not there. They think you've brought them out in the street to kill them. They think that all the wobbling and instability means you're going to abandon them. That's not true at all. When the wobbling and when the risk happens, that's when you're the most present. That's when you're very present. They think they're abandoned, and all the while, as a good dad, you're there firmly holding the back of their seat. You see it. And this is what the writer of this song is wanting us to see about God. There is no refuge like him. Oftentimes, trusting the present help of God is trusting it when you can't see it and when you can't feel it. But anyone who's walked with God long enough that through days of trouble, you know undeniably God was there to help you, especially as you look back once the smoke has cleared. He was there holding your seat all along. There's no one more eager and able. There's no one more present to help like him, even when you can't feel it. In fact, this is what he goes on to say in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we'll not fear when the earth gives way, he says, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, and he says, Selah. It's a Hebrew way of saying, stop and think about what I'm saying. Stop and think about this. He says, even when life gives you its worst, God will stop at nothing to keep his people. Not so much that he keeps you from trouble, this song assumes trouble. In time, it's not going to keep, he assumes there's going to be times of trouble, but he also assumes God is there in trouble. The assumption is God. And maybe here's what's so beautiful about this song. Maybe there's no one better to give us these lyrics than the one who's writing it. If you'll notice in your Bible, maybe it'll be on the screen, above verse one, we're told about who's writing this song. We're told it's the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah write this song. And you may not have Korah as a name on ready recall in your Bible knowledge. We only get one chapter about Korah And it's in everyone's favorite book of the Bible, the Bible that you read probably most often, that you're most familiar with, the book of Numbers. (laughs) One chapter, the book of Numbers, your favorite, your favorite chapter in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. What's happening there is the people of Israel wandering through the troubled wilderness. 
They've been delivered from slavery to Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness, and Korah is there, and he's sort of fed up with just walking in circles. He's fed up with it. I thought we got out of slavery to go somewhere. We're in the wilderness. He doesn't like where they are. He doesn't like their leader, Moses. He thinks he has better plans than God for Israel. And so he confronts Moses about all this, and Moses confronts him back, and he says, God will settle the score here. God will settle this. What, what, what Korah does is he actually like tries to whip up a rebellion. He gathers a few ringleaders to like come against Israel, come against God's purposes, and come against Moses. And he says, Moses says, God will settle this. Show up tomorrow morning, and God will settle this. And what happens next is really shocking if you've ever read the story. God shows up the next morning and he brings a judgment on Korah for his rebellion, for trying to whip up a rebellion. He brings a judgment on them and the ringleaders. And what happens is the ground opens up and the earth swallows Korah and his friends and they were seen no more. And that was a sign to the people of God that God and his purposes will not fail even in the midst of trouble. He'll swallow the troubles and not his people. And so what's interesting is now the sons of Korah, who had their father swallowed by a judgment from God, are now writing a song to say, God is strong for his people. He will fight for them. He will not be opposed. Even if the earth gives way, we've seen it happen. It swallowed our dad. Even if the earth gives way, God will be strong for his people. His purposes will not be opposed. We've seen it, the sons of Korah sing. And notice we're also told in the words above that this is a song to be sung by Alamoth. According to Alamoth, it says, this is a Hebrew musical term referring to the voices of the young or the youth. <laughs> the design of this song, as the sons of Korah wrote it, was that it was to be sung by Hebrew youth and the congregation as a way of saying, the strength of God is not leveraged for the strong. The strength of God is leveraged for the weak. Hear the proof of it from the voices of the vulnerable. Isn't that amazing? Even the smallest and the weakest among you have no need to fear. God is strong, and he has the back of all who look to him. That's what this song is saying. And so listen, if you're here today, and you find yourself in sort of these categories of trouble or weakness or fear or chaos, the message of this song, like, Point number one, look to God, fall on him. Psalm 46 is a song for you. It's a song for you. The second section of this moves from God the protector to God the comforter. Pick up in verse four. He says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her and she will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. In verse four, there's this mention of a river that makes glad the city of God, the people of God. And what Korah's sons are telling us is that for the people of God, even when life is raging, even when life is raging against you, isn't it true for the people of God that there is a stream of refreshment that shows up in the chaos? There's a stream of refreshment. The river of gladness is a reference to the very presence of God himself, who verse five says, is in your very midst. Now hold this with me, like the city of God and this reference to the holy habitation of the Most High. For, the Old Test, for Old Testament Israel, this was a reference to Jerusalem, specifically to the temple. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was isolated to the temple, but we read this as New Testament readers. 
And the presence of God has moved from a place like the temple to a person in God's own son. The presence of God moves from place to person. And because of the work that Jesus has done for sinners like you and me, death and resurrection, what's happened now is that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit of God, the, living, the, the, the presence of the living God to dwell inside of all who look to him. And so all the more for us as New Testament Christians, the writer wants us to know the God who protects you is also in your midst. He's not protecting you from a press box. Even more, he's holding you. He's in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he says, you will not be moved. So he goes on in verse six and he says, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. It might be true that the world around you will lose its collective mind. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter, he says, but God utters his voice and the earth melts. And the earth melts. Hey, you remember the moment in the life of Jesus where he's uh, out on the sea with his disciples and it says the seas are raging around them and these trained sailors are freaked out that they're gonna die and Jesus is just taking a nap in the stern of the boat. He's just sleeping. These trained sailors thought that God was sleeping on them in a time of trouble. Have you brought us out here to the sea to kill us? It's raging, and you're taking a nap. Sound familiar to this psalm? What happens in that moment? Jesus wakes up. They badger him. He wakes up. He looks at his disciples. He looks at the raging seas. He stands up with non-anxious presence, and he says, be still. He didn't even have to raise his voice. He just woke up from a nap. It was probably more like, be still. And it was. And it was. And the, the disciples were actually more scared then than they were before when they thought they were going to die because of the raging seas because they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The earth melts. Listen. The same God whose voice melts the earth is the same God whose word has the power to melt your anxieties. It's the same God who has the power to melt your anxieties. Psalm 94, verse 19. When the cares of my heart are many. Anyone else? When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations, your comforts, they cheer my soul. Listen, church. Give yourself to the book. Give yourself to the book. There is power in this word to speak to places. There's power in this word to melt fears inside of you that no other word can go and no other presence can give. For all who look to God, he leverages his voice not against you. He leverages his voice for you. And so the writer of this song ends section two with a bang. Look at verse seven. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, Selah. He reiterates for a third time in seven verses the thing that you and I are prone to forget, the thing that you and I are prone to trivialize. He says, God is with you. No, no, he's really with you. 
Don't sleep on the repetition here. Verse one, he's a very present help in times of trouble. Verse five, he's in your midst to hold you so that you won't be moved. Here in verse seven, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies is with you, not metaphorically, actually with you. He says, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. He's a safe place. He's a landing place. He gives the title God of Jacob, and I just want you to know, maybe you've just passed over that. That's not a throwaway title in the Bible. You remember who Jacob is? Jacob of Genesis was a thief, a liar, a trickster. He was a wanderer. He was one who wrestled with God. He was one who had no business with God, and yet God made a covenant with him and kept it. That's who Jacob is. And so when the songwriter gives God this title, the God of Jacob, he wants us to know that just like God was with Jacob, the wanderer, so he is with you because you're a wanderer too. Just like God was with Jacob, his grip on you is stronger than your grip on him. He's with you and he's keeping you. Just like God was with Jacob, he's a pursuer of those who wander from him. Turn back to him today. He's with you to keep you. You don't have to wrestle with this God. You can surrender to him and trust him. He will fight for you. The God of Jacob, the God of wrestlers and wanderers is our fortress. He's a safe place. That's amazing. You can almost hear, if this were a musical note we were singing today, this is building. This song is building. From the first verse, it's a song of protection. God is a very present help in trouble. In the second verse, he's a, this is a song of comfort. He's with you in your midst with a voice that's able to melt the chaos. And there's one more section of this song. It's the final three verses. And the idea of these final verses is that we wouldn't just stand and look, wow, man, God is an amazingly strong presence. God is an amazingly comforting presence. The idea of these last three verses is that you wouldn't just look at God, that you would actually worship God. Don't just look at him, like bend to him. We get this invitation to worship, but this invitation comes with a bit of a twist. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse eight. He says, come and behold. There, there's the invitation to worship. Don't just look at him. Like, come, come to him. He, there's this invitation of approach. Like, God's not asking you to stand far off. He's actually saying, come close. Come, behold. Behold what? What am I supposed to look at? What am I supposed to worship? He says, the works of the Lord. Okay. But then notice what he says. What kind of works am I supposed to behold? He says, I want you to look at the desolations he's brought to the earth. <laughs> it's an invitation to worship, but with a twist. You didn't see desolations coming, did you? You saw something more tranquil. But remember, this is a song that's aimed at drilling into our hearts that God really is a refuge. He really is a strength. He really is a fortress. He really is a help of trouble. He really will fight for you. It's drilling that message home. And we're not just making this up about God. And so what the psalmist does is he proves it by saying, if you don't believe me, then look at the desolations he's brought to the earth. You see, for the original Hebrew singers of this song, they would have had ready in their minds the floating bodies of the Egyptian soldiers and horses that were chasing them to take them back into slavery. 
They would have had in their minds floating dead bodies who were their enemies that instead of chasing them down, God swallowed them up in the sea. Look at the desolations he's brought. God isn't a metaphorical refuge. This isn't like an allegorical therapeutic strength. This is an actual strength, an actual refuge. Just look at the dead bodies of the enemies that he's won for you. This is why he says in verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The Israelites would have known the enemies in the wilderness that were too strong for them to conquer. They were too weak to defeat them. And yet here they were. They're singing this song. God really does fight for us. Our God's different. We don't have to wave our arms to get his attention. He's mindful of us, and he fights for us. And so you say, okay, he brought desolations for Israel. Has he brought desolations for us? What can we look at? What about the cross of Calvary, where Jesus crushes the head of Satan and his accusations against us by suffering in our place? What about the desolation of Calvary? What about the desolation he's made of your sin and mine? He paid our debt before God, drenched in innocent blood. What kind of desolation has been made to your sin? What kind of desolation has been made to death? He defanged it with an empty tomb, and with folded grave clothes, he sustains the taunt. What kind of desolation has he brought to Satan, sin, and death through our Lord Jesus? Tell me now that God isn't a refuge. Tell me he's not a strength. Tell me he's not a help. Tell me he's not a fortress. What kind of flex has he offered us in Jesus? And so this song closes, and here's what's amazing about the close of this song. The voice flips from the sons of Korah to God himself. The sons of Korah are like, hey, we've done enough. We've said enough about God. It's time for you to hear from his mouth. (laughs) his own voice that melts the earth. And so look at verse 10, the famous verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, exclamation point. Now this verse, I guess I gotta tell you, this verse is not saying what most of us think it's saying. It's actually way better than what most of us think it's saying. Most of us read this as like a Hobby Lobby wall hanging for your house. You know, it's like a coffee cup verse. Like, hey, what this verse is saying is, you know what? You had a hard night's sleep. Grab a cup of coffee, sit down, and know that I'm God. And kids, be quiet, please. (laughs) That's how most of us read this. But it's actually way better. The be still and know in Hebrew is way bigger than that. It's not so much, listen, this is not so much God speaking to you, be still and know that I'm God. This is not God speaking to his people. Instead, it's a warning to the enemies of God's people. It's more like this, be still, drop your weapons and freeze. I am God and I know my people. This is Mr. Miles walking into the room and giving a warning to me and letting his son know that he had his back all in one word. This is God saying, enough on behalf of his people. That's different than Hobby Lobby. They could only wish to be that cool. 
The shadow of your father is a safe place to stand. Coming in behind his voice that melts your enemies is a safe place to stand. The accusations of Satan have been frozen because of the voice of your Lord Jesus who said it's finished. And so it may be difficult to see now, but there's coming a day, God says, when I will be exalted. It's not we're not speaking for him as though we hope something to be true. He's speaking for himself, so let the big boy speak. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. There may be no confusion. There will be no confusion on that day. He's saying, I will have my people. I will not let them go. I will fight for them, and they will be with me. Can you come in behind the strength of your God today? Christian, this is your God. I think far too often we have this tranquil, tame view of God. He's not a pacifist when it comes to you. He's a God of action and war fighting over you for your flourishing in his presence. A mighty fortress is our God. This is his character leveraged for you. It's seen most clearly in Jesus. Jesus was not a pacifist over his people. Luke 9, 51, he set his face like flint to Jerusalem to go win his people, even when suffering was facing him. And so the writer ends this song, I love this, the writer ends this song with the only thing left for us to say. There's only one thing left for us to say, verse 11, the Lord of hosts really is with us. The God of angel armies really is with us. And the God of Jacob, the God of wanderers, the God of wrestlers, the God of people who have a light grip on him, but he has a strong grip on them, that God really is our fortress. He really is a safe place to land. And so today, if you're not a Christian, I'm really, really glad that you're here I hope you've run with us through this passage. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, like there is an invitation loud and clear to you. Come to this God of refuge. You don't have to keep finding a refuge in all the things this world has to offer. You don't have to keep getting your own back. There's an invitation in the God of the Bible through his son Jesus to say, I'll be a refuge for you. Come to me. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to be a Christian. Today, if you are a Christian, just a few things I want to say to you as we wrap up. Follower of Jesus, where do you tend to doubt the goodness of God? Because all of us do. Where do you tend to doubt the goodness of God? Where do you tend to doubt whether or not he'll stand up for you? There's an invitation in this passage to return to him. He's good and he's a mighty fortress. Where do you tend to look, Christian, where do you tend to look for refuge and strength, strength in other places than God? Because we all do. Where do you tend to look for refuge and strength as though God isn't enough? Maybe another way of asking that question, where in your life are you tired and insecure? Because those places of tiredness and insecurity are probably places you're trying to find refuge and strength that are only a mirage. The last one, where is God encouraging you 
and inviting you to believe again that he is strong. Where in your life is God inviting you and encouraging you to believe again that he's strong and not just strong, but strong for you? This is not a belief out there. This is a personal invitation from the most high God who is our refuge and strength. Let's pray. God, we want to say in this room today, would you please help us to believe? God, there's, there's so many ways in which even as I preach this, my faith is weak. <laughs> like I want to be elevated by the truth of this song, but I recognize that I, I don't have that kind of faith oftentimes. And so God, would you elevate my faith? You are my refuge. You are my strength. You really are present to help me. Thank you that you're, a, you're the God of wanderers. You're the God of those who wrestle with you. You're the God of those who have a weak grip on you, but your grip is strong. Thank you, God, that you don't let go. Build up your people today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.